0: Uh, My name is Simon Longstaff, I'm the executive director of the Ethics Centre and co-founder of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and I'd like to welcome you all this afternoon for the session on knowledge wars. Uh, To begin I'd like to recognise the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to the elders past and present and to any Indigenous people who are here today. When the... uh, And I should also mention, just if you've got a mobile phone, if you could put it on silent, please. And if you're tweeting, uh, the hashtag is hashfody. Now, later after Peter's spoken, there'll be an opportunity for questions and answers, and you can see microphones either side there to be uh, used for that purpose. We should have about 20 minutes for questions at the end. When we uh, think about science in this country, uh, some of the great heroes, of course, are the Nobel Prize winners. And today we're joined by Peter Doherty, a Nobel Prize winner. He shared the prize in 1996 for medicine for discovering the nature of the cellular immune defence system. He continues to be involved in research and divides his time between the University of Melbourne and St Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis. In his fifth book, the knowledge wars, he goes into bat for evidence-based reality in relation to debates on issues like childhood vaccination, global hunger, and anthropogenic climate change, and encourages us all to be informed and to evaluate the facts. I never thought I'd have to say this, but it's uh, a time now which seems to replicate just at the dawn of the Enlightenment when the evolution of science into its modern form prompted a moral panic throughout Europe. Church leaders and others were desperately concerned that science would destroy the moral fabric of the society that they'd had. In fact, it overturned years of superstition and it did cause a revolution. But it seemed after that to settle down that it would actually be something which was genuinely useful. And yet today in 2015, we find ourselves in circumstances where science itself is often considered to be dangerous. So to consider that topic, to talk about his dangerous idea today, would you please welcome Peter Doherty.
1: Thank you, Simon. Uh, I could hear what he was saying. Uh, Well, good afternoon. Um, So this is about, to some extent, about the knowledge wars, which is a a book I've just completed and which I'll be discussing as I go go through this. So you kind of said a bit of my introductory remark, really. I mean, human beings are clearly the most dangerous species on Earth and perhaps the most dangerous species in the universe. We don't know, but I think some of us are suspecting there may be even more dangerous species out there. And, of course, science is a human construct. And though science does enormous good, uh, science is also dangerous. Even the very good science can invoke the law of unintended consequences. Science demands that we remove the filters, the horse blinkers of dogma, belief and prejudice which sometimes masquerade as common sense. The requirement is that we have to see the thing itself. Science demands that we reject any authoritarian or dogmatic view of how nature operates and respect only the authority of data and the ideas that come from that data. That view was correctly perceived, as Simon said, as dangerous by the religious and princely authorities who controlled Western civilization at the time of the European Dark Ages. And it is equally dangerous to the infinitely greedy, infinitely self-serving, infinitely corrupt, and morally bankrupt power elites who are manipulating democratic government today as they seek to impose what is emerging as a ever-intrusive corporate fascist state that's globalised. Just think, if the authoritarians of medieval times had been able to maintain control and stop the Renaissance, the natural world would actually be in infinitely better shape. If we still believe that the devil or witches caused the plague rather than bacteria, we would have no global overpopulation issue. There would be no concern about anthropogenic climate change, which we couldn't measure anyway. And uh, we wouldn't have wards full of people with Alzheimer's disease. They'd all be dead long before that. But most of us would likely prefer that the Renaissance had happened, that science had happened, and that we live in interesting times. I'm not sure that's true of some in our cabinet who might like to reverse the Renaissance. Um, Some of the best minds of the 14th century, I think. (laughs) To echo Charles Dickens, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. It's a time of unparalleled opportunity and a time of massive challenges. When it comes to distinguishing the good from the bad or the delusional, the confusion for most of us is with information based in science. And that confusion is, I believe, extremely dangerous. That's what The Knowledge Wars is about, that's what my book is about, is about trying to clear the view and finding a way through the information mess. The book gives some historical background, discusses how science, science works and how scientists train and operate, but it's basically concerned with process, understanding the process of science and what it's about. And it's also concerned with providing some information on on how each and every one of us, anyone who can use the internet or or, or a search engine, might exclude some some very prominent judges, but most of us can do it, (laughs) can access valid information about the so-called, or sometimes self-styled, experts and the culture of science itself. The Knowledge Wars is a book for non-scientists, even for those who think they hate science. But I think a lot of people who feel alienated from science are already halfway to being scientists anyway. I, I kind of regard anyone who's a good cook or a committed gardener as, as kind of a scientist in their own right. Um, maybe some of the chefs that throw things on television uh, are more like uh, surgeons than scientists, but who knows. Um, so, and I also think... Maybe the more literary and arty among us could think again about the idea of the Renaissance man, or the Renaissance woman, of course, because we all know that Shakespeare's plays were written by a woman, but um, who wrote poetry, plays, music, and was at the same time involved in business, politics, and fascinated by the natural philosophy of his time. Henry VIII is a bit before that, and he wasn't a very good husband, but... um, he, uh, he kind of set a lot of this in motion actually by selling uh, by himself the head of the church and actually uh, demolishing the monasteries and, and removing their power and authority and that allowed a lot of things to blossom in England things were also blossoming on the European continent. Uh, in Padua for instance a breakaway group of students formed a new university and it was in Padua that they started to dissect the human body and once again to dissect animals and they started to discover things like the in fact, as William Harvey discovered, the blood is actually driven around the body by the heart. It doesn't, as Galen, the great physician, great Roman physician, believed, who was a very distinguished guy, that the blood drained one way to the liver where it was destroyed. Kind of wrong. Uh, I, I often wonder what people thought when they cut an animal's throat and it pumped blood. Where do they think that happened? I don't know. I think people just weren't constrained to think in terms of curiosity. Uh, perhaps by the culture of the time. It's very intriguing, and maybe philosophers like Simon have had much better insight into that than I do, because it's certainly something that's uh, worth thinking about. Natural philosopher. Natural philosopher was the early term for scientist. The word scientist wasn't even used in the English language until the 19th century. Um, (laughs) Isaac Newton, for instance, did not describe himself as a physicist, that word was not in use, he described himself as a natural philosopher, and uh, that came later. Knowledge is power. This is what really started it off, at least in the English-speaking world, it was the thinking of Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon was Lord High Chancellor of England under James I of England, James VI of Scotland, we lived in Scotland for a while and you have to say that, it's a bit, uh, and uh, and, and Bacon formalised the basic idea that drives models, modern science. He founded the inductive approach, mandating that if we're to understand the natural world, we have to look at the thing itself. Uh, his statement was actually ipsia, scientia potestis est, knowledge is power. And he was talking about specialist knowledge and knowledge about the natural world. He, he knew all about power. He was Lord High Chancellor of England, for for heaven's sake. And he knew all about education and all the rest of it. Education does not necessarily confer power, as anyone who's a schoolteacher knows. But, um, But knowledge, the certain types of knowledge do confer power. And that led to his thinking and the, and the effect it had on the culture in England at that time, or in London particularly, led to the founding of the Royal Society of London in 1662. It, from 1662, it uh, was chartered by King Charles II. little button I'm wearing is the, uh, is the badge of the Royal Society. Uh, early members were people like Robert Hooke, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle. These are all people we identify now as scientists. But it was also people like Christopher Wren, the architect, and Samuel Pepys, the diarist. So it was people who... basically had an interest and a curiosity, and that was the characteristic of the Renaissance man. It it was an interest in everything, including the science of the natural world, and that we've tended to lose. We think of the Renaissance man as sort of a a know-it-all type, maybe a bit into uh, into, into poetry and so forth, but really not someone who engages seriously with science. Later philosophers, particularly Karl Popper, pointed out that scientists only fool themselves if they set out to prove something. What they are indeed doing is to disprove a null hypothesis that two things are not different. Yeah, null hypothesis is about as weird as it gets in The Knowledge Wars, otherwise the book's in plain English, but you have to think about that. The rules of science. We start with a testable idea or a hypothesis. Sometimes that hypothesis is not right. We make systematic measurements, analyse the results, then pull the findings and conclusions together to, cont- to, co- to give us and to synthesise a carefully documented and discussed story that is published after approval by at least two informed peers for everyone to read. Um, Simon's a bit bothered by the fact that often when we look at the data, we change our hypothesis. The, the actual way a scientific paper, as Peter Medawar pointed out, the um, other medicine Nobel Prize winner who wrote beautifully, is actually a fake. Uh, but it, it, it's, about, it's about the data. Everything's about the data. In science, everything is in, in the analysis is about the data. Uh, Sometimes, of course, uh, you've got it totally wrong and you find something blindingly new. And that's a paradigm-shifting discovery. And that's, for instance, how I came to win a Nobel Prize. We were just lucky enough to stumble on something that was blindingly new and we were lucky enough to make some good guesses about it. I wrote about it in my book, The Beginner's Guide to Winning the Nobel Prize, the first book that I wrote, (laughs) and the publishers insisted that I have a list of things at the end on how to win the Nobel Prize. (laughs) And so I had, you know, bullet point number eight, discover something really big (laughs) the first scientific journal the philosophical transactions of the royal society was published in 1665 it's now digitized it's open access and apart from the papers that have gone in over the last year it's still publishing publishing as a review journal now Anyone can read that journal. Any one of you who can look on the web and search can read the philosophical transactions of the royal society and it 's quite illuminating when you go back and read it actually i 've just been going back to read some of the papers some of the uh, the, the, early, the, the initial report by Lewenhock of him seeing uh, uh, the, m- m- Animocules, or microorganisms down his little microscopes. And he was actually seeing things that people haven't really credited him with. And he describes them, but I'm not sure he recognised them. And that often happens in science. Something gets described, but you don't really recognise it until you get a better understanding. It, it's, it's, it's the limitations of the human mind and where we go with it. Massive advances we've seen in science over the last three centuries didn't just depend on that process of looking and analysing for data. They also depended on a number of other things. Think about it. There would be no modern science without the invention of the printing press. There would have been no renaissance, I think, without the invention of the printing press. But you can't imagine that scientific papers could be published by monks writing them up in scriptoria uh, that that's just not possible you had to have printing then you also needed a change in culture that did come with the renaissance that the development of an entrepreneurial culture there was already an entrepreneurial culture in the sense that people like Sir Walter Raleigh were going off and robbing Spanish treasure ships and all that sort of thing but you had to make that a more formal and correct process and so what you needed were uh, the availability of credit. You needed banks, and banks started to emerge. You needed insurance. We have Lloyd's of London. You needed later. You needed patent offices. Particularly, you needed honest accountancy. Uh, there's a very nice book written by, by a lady whose name I'm blocking on, who says that really it's accountants who founded the modern world. And she may be right, though it's a horrible thought. And. Uh, <laughs> And you needed an appropriate body of commercial law and regulation. So all those things went forward together. It wasn't just science itself. And, of course, science operates with its sisters, engineering and technological development. So it's not just discovery science. You have to translate it to actually achieve something. Also, perceived as an essential role for government after developments like radar that had such a big influence in the Second World War and, of course, the emergence of nuclear bombs, public funding has driven and continues to drive the great culture of discovery. You cannot really expect the private sector to drive public discovery science. is too risky for them. There's not sure enough of return. We look to the private sector for translation. Uh, we look to industry and entrepreneurs, some government funds as well. Translation, uh, a lot of governments fall in love with the idea of translation. They have the idea you don't really need to do the science. You could just translate the science. Well, it's kind of news. If you don't own the science in the first place, you're not going to be the person who translates it for a start. And the other thing is if you don't do really good science, science then quite frankly you're going to be trying to translate crap and a lot of that happened particularly in the early days of, of, uh, of gene therapy and some of it killed people and it set science back quite a bit for a while Science has prospered and so are we, but it's great success, science has become increasingly specialised and more and more inaccessible to most members of society. Nobody now can say, as Francis Bacon did way back then, he claimed all knowledge as his province. That's just not possible. You cannot claim that. And given the problems facing us and the choices we're required to make, this basic rejection of or ignorance of science by many in the community is, frankly, very dangerous. In such challenging times, democracy can neither flourish nor function to promote the general good if the great majority of our political leaders and the voting public are scientifically illiterate and readily manipulated by delusional and dishonest politicians and media. Barry Jones tells the story that, Uh, when he was in parliament, raising an issue with a colleague that a particular approach would violate the second law of thermodynamics, the response was, no problem, we'll repeal it. (laughs) Interfacing intelligently with science does not mean we need... For for the broader community, you can interface intelligently with science without knowing a lot of obscure jargon or being familiar with the details... behind the conclusions reached by scientists. We don't need to understand... Uh, uh, we need to understand, really, the underlying culture. We don't need to state the laws and so forth in, in, in understanding science and how it works. So the knowledge wars has no big scientific words, no confusing abbreviations, and I'm not asking you to grapple with the laws of thermodynamics or anything else. And though I make my personal views on issues like the value of biomedical research or the danger posed by anthropogenic climate change, I'm not trying to tell you what to think. The whole purpose of the book is to give a warts and all view of science. Sometimes scientists come across as holier than thou, and that's self-defeating. And to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. Scientists are not uh, the roundheads of of the 21st century. We're just people, we're artisans actually, we're part intellectuals, part artisans. We look at things and we try to understand them. So the section of the book is on the good, the bad and the ugly, and and the basic motivation behind a lot of it is, is to give you some insights into how it works and also to suggest how you might actually look for yourself. But that's a bit technical and, and so I put that in some appendices at the back of the book and there's, there's t- the titles of those are something like checking out a scientist, reading the science literature because now a lot of the science literature is open access after a year uh, of pub- in publication or open access from the outset. Anyone can go to it and read it. Reading the scientific literature, what do you make of a scientific paper if you've never looked at one? How do you understand stand it and how and the way that it's written in its particular stylized form? Then also there's a discussion of the economics of publishing and a discussion of peer review. Sometimes it's put forward as though something that's been peer reviewed is now sort of uh, sort of, sort of dogmatic fact. It's not. All peer review says is that people have looked at a submitted research paper, they've looked at the data, they've looked at the interpretation, they've looked at the arguments, they think it's interesting, they think that the conclusions are valid from the data that's presented and they think it should be out there for other, other people to scrutinize. That's what peer reviews is about. It's not some sort of uh, saying that this is set in stone. Or it, um, also, you know, journals are quite happy to publish people who are sceptics if they're serious scientists. The, the, top, uh, um, the top journals like Nature and so forth, if someone is sceptical about a particular position, they can argue that well and they can justify it well, they're really keen to publish it because controversy is interesting in itself. We all like a good argument. Modern science is enormous in its extent and no one person, no matter who they are, can be right across any field. So that's why, for example, thousands of scientists work in areas as diverse as atmospheric physics, glaciology, marine biology, dendrochronology, that's tree ring dating, contribute to the quinquennial IPCC reports. And that's why, of course, you, and, and the thing you see in those reports is they will change from, as, uh, from report to report. You will see different emphases as the results that came in, maybe with better instrumentation, uh, better systems and so forth. As the, the interpretations change, you will see a modification in, in the way they write these things up. So the Knowledge Wars is written from the point of view of an insider, uh, me in the medical sciences, and from the point of view of an outsider in climate science. I'm no better informed about climate science than anyone who's got some sort of general understanding of science, and I could not, for instance, really assess whether the the, the enormous meteorological data sets that are being accessed and analysed by these people are correctly interpreted. In the text of the book, I break back and forth between those two views, the inside of you and the outside of you, and use examples from biomedicine and climate science. And there's interesting parallels. There's not much documentation in the book, very few references, as my basic idea is how and where you might look. You've also got to realise that science works by trust. We're sometimes accused that science is the new religion. That's ridiculous. Religion is, religious belief is held by faith, and as St Thomas Aquinas says, faith Faith is that for which you, uh, uh, you hold a view by faith when there is no evidence. So that's the exact opposite of science. We don't hold views by faith. So science actually works by trust and confidence. We have trust and we have confidence that people doing science are playing by the rules. And uh, that's why when someone fakes in science, it's such a betrayal because they've broken with that that uh, that understanding Science also works by reputation. That's not true for some areas of science. It's not true for defense science, for instance, where it's conducted behind, uh, behind uh, a wall of secrecy. It's not true for the development of a scientific product or a science-based product, say in a drug company. You've got a whole lot of very serious science that goes ahead to take something forward through development to the stage where you can get a project, uh, product. Now, at least when that process... Processes going forward, that's likely to be in confidence to the particular company. But the type of discovery science that's funded through the public sector is all out there and there are no faceless people in science because we live by our reputations. We live by our names. So all you need to know to check out a science scientist is to need to know where to go to look, but what you need to know is their name, Uh, where they're working, what their affiliation is, and what they're publishing, and where they're publishing it. And you can look all that up. If it's in the medical sciences, you go to the open access PubMed database. If it's in anything else, you can go to Google Scholar. The book also writes about fraud, error, and criminality, uh, scientists who uh, accept public funding and commit fraud, fraud can and do go to jail in the United States. Uh, scientists who have are charged with the responsibility to give a warning about some serious danger can and do go to jail. Uh, you may be aware of the story of the Italian earthquake six, who who, uh, who did not it was perceived for a time, did not adequately warn people about the 2009 L'Aquila earthquake, 308 people died. They were sentenced to six years in prison. Now, that was overturned, but it sets a precedent and it says that, say, if the guys on the IPCC don't provide adequate warning, they could, in the future, be prosecuted. They have to tell it as they see it. Um, Fraudsters are often outed by bright, young, altruistic trainees in the lab. The real authority of science is in the data. It's not, in the end, with the lab head. And if young scientists think or find that their lab head is faking, they out it. And that's happened in a number of instances. It's happened in biomedical science, and it's happened in sociology, where a lot of the fraud happens. Again, in medical science, <laughs> I didn't mean to insult the sociologist. There's, there's a major case. It's in the book. There's a major case in, uh, in, uh, in the Netherlands, for instance. Quite an extraordinary case. Uh, Also, we've had instances of of criminality. For instance, the Tuskegee experiment, where for 20 or 30 years, men who were infected with syphilis were given free medical treatment and all the rest of it, but they were allowed to infect their partners and their children, and when penicillin became available, they weren't allowed to get the penicillin, though it could have cured them, and and their children and their wives. And and when that was outed, it caused enormous outrage. In the 1960s, the story came out. There's another related story, but The result of that was that everything changed and now we have all these informed consent rules, we have institutional review committees who scrutinise any human or animal experimentation and all the rest of it. Error is always possible, of course, and that does happen, and that's why you do get corrections, especially in the medical sciences at the moment where we're using a lot of instrumentation we're not particularly familiar with, and we're getting into the sort of modelling approaches that the climate sciences use for things like uh, um, uh, um, genomics and proteomics. And unless we're working with really competent people in that area, we've seen a number of instances where people have misinterpreted. I think the likelihood of fraud in mainstream climate science is almost zero. These are really big groups. Uh, The numbers are public, both the raw numbers and the uh, smooth numbers, which is what these guys always do, and uh, also they're very big groups with a lot of very bright young people. So my, my view, conspiracy in science is almost impossible, and a lot of the people who accuse people of a conspiracy, I think you can also look them up and take a good hard look at them, and you may find that uh, the money is at the foot of it somewhere along the line. Also with science, uh, a lot of the say climate change deniers refer back to a lot of old papers. With science, an old paper is just a a step in a process. If If the work in the paper is good, it becomes incorporated in the science. So you're not referring back to the old paper, you're often referring to the newer science that's been done. And if the work in the paper is irrelevant or bad, it's just like old soldiers. It just fades away and dies and you hear nothing more about it. And uh, that's the way it works. Um, Talking about scepticism and denial among scientists, it's interesting to draw parallels with the Warren and Marshall situation. The the sceptics will often say, well, the mainstream science is sometimes wrong. Look at Warren and Marshall's discovery that bacteria cause uh, stomach ulcers and stomach cancer. In actual fact, that whole thing was worked through in 10 years, and uh, and even... Even at the beginning, the pharmacology company that was massively threatened financially by this discovery because it meant they couldn't sell the drug, uh, the antacids and all the stuff that they were selling, uh, the pharmacology company actually funded some of the scientists. And, of course, all good scientists are sceptics. And if you're looking at a scientist sceptic, uh, you can tell whether they're a sceptic or an, a denier because a real scientist who's sceptical about something will continue to engage with the science and just like the real scientist, they will adjust, adjust their objection or conclusions. Their perception will change. It will never be rigid. If you see someone who, when they encounter new data, all they're trying to do is find out why, it, is state why it's wrong and find an exception somewhere and cherry-pick that, you know they're basically in denial. We also have to deal, in, in the broader community, with, the, with an intensely human practice of deliberate ignorance and invented narrative. We all do this. We all do it to some extent to protect ourselves from having to engage with every, every horrible reality. And Of course, when that, when that becomes a way of dealing with science, it becomes totally toxic. And also when we're concerned with public denial of serious science, we're faced with two kind of broad themes. One is the denial, for instance, of the effect of greenhouse gases by vested interests in the fossil fuel industries. We're all kind of familiar with that. We've seen these sort of greenwashing ads from the good oil companies on TV and all the rest of it. And it's very clear that they're just trying to discredit the idea that dumping endless amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere is dangerous. But denial's not restricted to that. There's also a kind of denial of shared belief. And a lot of these big organisations that are very well motivated actually also have almost a religious component to them. So you can't even have a discussion of the possible value of GM approaches for improving food production and nutritional value or preventing disease in food producing species. It's very hard to have a discussion in this country at the moment, though it's getting a bit easier, on the possible value of nuclear power. And uh, maybe that's not the solution for us, but it's hard to see how some of the North Hemisphere will get away without it. So, the knowledge wars. Um, basically, the blurb on the back of the book says there's something here to offend almost everyone. I think that's probably true. Um, a few dangerous ideas. Laws of nature are inexorable, and we have little, if anything, any control. Human beings are constructs of nature, it's not the other way around. The massive global experiment of continuing to drive the inexorable increase of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere while simultaneously acidifying the oceans is, when dealing with a group size of one, the earth and all its creatures living on it, unacceptable, dangerous and outright criminal. We would never get an an experiment like that through our Medical Institutional Experimentation Review Board. A modern democracy cannot flourish if the majority of politicians and the voting public are scientifically illiterate. Conspiracies are pretty much impossible in mainstream science. The players, especially the junior players, will not stand for it. For those who cry conspiracy, take a hard look at them. Even as to agree to disagree, issues in science can only really be sorted out within the informed community. Informed, innovative thinkers who come in from outside and we're seeing a lot of that at the moment because with the online type mechanisms you can get people who are basically interested in gaming uh, or people who come in from completely different... Uh, fields, making really serious comment on, say, the way that climate science data sets are handled or the way that pr- protein structures are, are, are assembled. And so I think we're going to see a lot of this sort of science on the web, if you like, where, where people who are, you know, completely unknown to the people who put the idea up will actually make substantial co- contributions. And we've seen that happen with, through pro- with protein structure and people who are actually into gaming, finding themselves as authors on scientific papers about how proteins put together. Um, sometimes with care and appropriate protections, we have to embrace the lesser of two evils and that's maybe what we're talking about when we're talking about nuclear power. Um, default denial, um, I recently encountered the argument that denial is actually the default position for humans. Uh, the point that was made is we are all conscious, we are the only species that is conscious of our own deaths. Uh, Other species show empathy when a relative dies, like elephants, and so they're not conscious they're going to die. But because we're conscious of our own deaths, we're in denial much of the time. And denial allows us to do things. It allows us to be adventurous. It allows us to be courageous. It allows us to sail beyond the horizon, to take risks. It allows us uh, to be inventive and to put aside what seems to be true. So denial is very important. The problem is when we get into denial about something that's really happening and it's Dangerous. And that, uh, that's one of the challenges facing us, is to get away from denial uh, uh, when there is a real threat that can't, uh, can't just be blown away. Um. I think first world nations that abandon their commitment to publicly funded discovery science, public education, the exploitation of science by skilled workforce will end up as a diminished vassal state that are held in contempt by their neighbours, not referring to any particular country. Um, Disruptive technologies that operate ultimately to our benefit are neither predictable nor, at least initially, necessarily recognised. We cannot rely on technology getting us out of every situation. While major technological innovation like nuclear fusion for electricity generation is possible, that, that may not eventually work. We also need to change the ways, way we do things and, and basically what we value. And it's that question of values I think that is tremendously important. We need to think about what we really value and what we, do we really want and how is that going to work in the long term. I think personally, I'm sure we'll hear this from Paul Krugman, neocon, no regulation, no tax, magic of the markets, economics has no place for the environment, for acting to limit greenhouse gas emissions, or in that matter for people, other than as units of production and consumption. A world where everything is commodified, is hideous, dangerous and ultimately unsustainable for life. We have to move on from these toxic practices. That doesn't mean that we have to abandon entrepreneurism and innovation of capitalism, but it does mean that we must have appropriate national and international regulation and taxing mechanisms. Science and technology can do a lot, but we will not achieve a sustainable future without changing what we value. We must redirect our priorities to provide decent lives and ensure a sustainable future, both for the global human family and for the magnificent diversity of life. Uh, we need appropriate globally enforceable criminal statutes to discourage and if necessarily restrain those who seek, generally for reasons of personal power or self-serving greed, to subvert the human f- future. We need a third industrial revolution, the sustainability revolution. There's no going back to some imagined Elysian past. Thank you.
0: I'll remind people, if you'd like to ask a question, you might line up, there are microphones on either side, they'll be illuminated. Uh, Before we do, I just want to um, pick up on where you started and where you ended. So, we both agree, I think everybody knows that the dawn of modern science, there really was a war. Yes. People had their books banned, they were burned, they were imprisoned and they were banished simply for the inquiries they made. eventually, that come now, and you've just described, I think, a world, if I paraphrase it, where you see science on the side of humanity being up against foes that may not be banning, burning, and banishing, but are nonetheless hell-bent on a destructive course of action. So that's the war, is it, that you see between science today, between science and humanity uh, and those forces?
1: That's fundamentally the war. You know, if you... I I discuss it in the book, but if if you go back to, to the, the, the Renaissance, the early days, as things were starting to happen. You've got the case of William Tyndale, mm. uh, the man who translated the Bible. And he translated, I think, from Hebrew and other texts, I, th- I think Latin maybe. And, of course, he translated it so the ordinary human beings could read it. Hey? Into English. Into English. Mm. Into English. And, and, and what happened to Tyndale? In the end, they caught up with him and, and they burned him. But in the end analysis, Tyndale won out because... Much of his translation is actually what's in the the King James Bible. So it's that beautiful language of the King James Bible, which so formulated our society. I mean, there's no doubt, I think, that if you took a look at these Western societies, the Bible has been the most single influential book because it codified a lot of practices and behaviours and all the rest of it and discussed them. So, so Tyndall in the end won out, though it was pretty agonising. So, the equivalent of that is today is, is you remove research funding. Uh, the first thing the present government did, in, did, did when it came in was to cut funding for the Bureau of Meteorology, uh, the CSIRO, ANSTO, I think the Institute of Marine Science, every, everything that does anything to do with climate science, the ARC. It cut funding, okay? So that's one thing you do. The other thing is you vilify the scientists, and you do that through, uh, through media. It's hard to know whether you've got a compliant media or, or in this country where you've got media controlling a compliant government. <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names. So it's a okay, well, let's
0: start over here. Uh, microphone one, your name, please. If you could just say your name, ask your question. Uh, And then we'll go from there. Hi, my name is Richard and thank you very much. Uh, Fantastic insights. Um, One slightly flippant question, I guess. How do we know that elephants aren't conscious of their mortality? And second, slightly more serious question, um, would humans be less dangerous if they weren't
1: conscious of their own mortality? Um, yeah, you're absolutely right, so that's why I say I have to have trust and confidence in the person who told it to me, It was a very good scientist, because I haven't looked it up. So that's an example of trust and confidence.
0: But I, you know, I the think, credibility of your whole book's just been I think
1: shot. I No, 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 it's, I can't know. I can only know a very limited amount of stuff, firstly because, uh, you know, I'm a, a fairly specialised scientist. And secondly, because I'm, I'm almost 75 years old, and my mind is going quickly. Uh, <laughs> someone was talking about uh, Bernard, uh, uh, the guy from Crikey was talking about the surveillance state. Bernard Keene. Bernard at the yeah. thing I was at last night. And he was saying how they can track exactly where, t- where you are from your cell phone, your Fitbit, your, uh, your computer, your iPad, and all the rest of it. And, and he's saying how terrible this is. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, it's got, One good feature of it, if I could just hit a button and say, where the hell am I? (laughs) And and then maybe in five or ten years I could hit a button and say, who the hell am I? (laughs) But huh. no, I mean, that's the issue of trust and confidence. I took that on trust and I haven't really looked it up. And I deliberately didn't because I wanted that question. Thank you. <laughs> but, but we all do. I mean,
0: none of us have seen the dark side of the moon. I no. haven't actually seen a blue whale. But, you know, there is a lot of trust and confidence in yeah. the process to say that there is another side and there are blue whales. Yes. Yeah. Um, on that slightly esoteric note, um, microphone two.
1: Thanks, Peter. Um, my name's Robin. Thank you for the presentation. Really enjoyed it. Um, I'm a scientist by training and it seems to me that we're actually not very good at marketing ourselves and when we train as scientists, we learn a systematic approach to solving problems, we learn how to communicate with our peers, Mm. but we don't learn how to communicate with the general public. Mm. So I'm wondering whether we need to be sort of taking a bit more ownership about how we communicate our messages to get them out there better and conversely whether we should be thinking more broadly, we have, you know, religion education for people? Should we be encouraging more critical appraisal for people who aren't studying the sciences as well? I I don't know what's taught in schools. I'm not a school teacher and I I think we need to... There are two sorts of science education we need in schools. You need the you need the education for the really bright young kids who are trying to, who, who just are excited by ideas. And, you know, I, I see, we see people coming into the labs at their PhD and they say, what really started you off? And she said, well, I went to the Holy Mother of God's Catholic high school. We had a fantastic science teacher. I am just in love with chemistry. And, you know, that, you'd see that and that may be you. And, well, it might have been many, except I started being a vet, which was a bit different. But um, so. So there's that science education, but I think that will only be really applicable to a relatively small proportion of people. We we really need a much broader scientific education about process, about relative risk. I think a lot of it can be done through example and discussing example, probability. Uh, you know, there is some of this uh, discussing what happens if you leave your kid in a dark car, that sort of thing. So we need a lot, I think, examples and sort of practical things that get sort of embedded in people's minds and, and give them an idea about this relative risk thing. Of course, so much of the of the media depends on denying uh, this relative risk idea. I mean, the vax- anti-vax thing is all about denying relative risk. And then uh, a lot of scientists can take the wrong approach. They come someone and say, "Well, vaccinations are completely safe. No medical." Pre- Procedure is completely safe. Everything is relative risk, but you know, 60 minutes couldn't couldn't air if it didn't if it denied if it ignored relative risk. I mean, so yeah. Thank you. Uh, anyone else up here? Yeah, please come to the microphone when you're able. Hi. Hi. How are you? This is your scene, not mine. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just great to hear you talk. Um, I just have a question whether you would share with us um, whether you have a view on the debate on, some, on the possible existence of a Lyme-like disease in Australia. Lyme disease? Yeah. I, I, I really don't know. I mean, you know, Lyme disease is a disease in North America. It's caused by uh, someone in the audience, Borrelia, tick-borne, I think. It's tick. Um, mm. tick. It's uh, it's maintained in, um, in um, some sort of mice and deer. And a lot of people suffer it from it in the northeast United States. And people here think they have it and the doctors tell them they haven't. But I, I really don't have any more insight to it than that. I mean, there's, it's, it's a lot of... It should be diagnosable. I mean, it's a real disease with a real cause. There are a lot of diseases out there that are kind of difficult. I mean, you don't know how much they're real, how much they're psychosomatic. Uh, for instance, chronic fatigue syndrome, I think initially more and more people think there's something there but they don't know really what it is, there's a number of different things. Uh, windmill syndrome, you know, that. Uh, so, so basically, it, but I don't know the answer about Lyme. Mm.
0: Okay, anyone for microphone two, if not we'll stay over here. Somebody here for microphone one. Yes, microphone one if you'd like to come forward, please uh, James bevan's, my name. now, on the basis that economics is the science of how to dis- distribute
1: things, why is economics used as a like an excuse for not uh, spending Money to explore other sciences, like why it's used like as a way to sort of have a war against exploring other uh, knowledge sources. Hmm. Well, you know, economics—it's uh, always described as a dismal science. Um, It's—you um, know—there is a Nobel Prize in economics. It's actually wasn't set up by Alfred Nobel. It's called the Swedish. Banks Prize for Economic Sciences in the name of Alfred Nobel. The the Swedish banks bought their way into the Nobel Prizes in the 1960s, which was good because the Nobel Prize became worth a lot more money. I mean, nobody's objecting to that, but but there's still a lot of feeling in the uh, Nobel Foundation that it's uh, that it's not a good idea, and it's not. It it sanctioned uh, Milton Friedman, who's. uh, you know, when I first read Milton Friedman's ideas about economics, I thought if we apply that to Australia, we'll end up with a country that at best will be a mine and a farm. Well... Um, <laughs> there's a very good book, actually. Uh, I, and and it's, it's a book... Uh, well, it's good because it agrees with my prejudices, right? So that's a good book. It's a book called um, Seven Bad Ideas how mainstream economists uh, have damaged America and the world. It's by a man called Jeff Madrick, who's written on economics for the New York Times and is also for Harper's, I think. And I think it's a very compelling book. He points out that Friedman's ideas were essentially a philosophical position. Friedman had absolutely no data. He just basically came forward with these ideas. And they're wonderful ideas. Neocon economics is great. It Because for certain people, Paul Krugman, who's speaking this, after this evening, mm. uh, will tell you that this is a zombie idea. It's undead. It, it's, it, it keeps getting killed. There's never any evidence for it, but it never goes away. Why doesn't it go away? Well, it doesn't go away because it serves the interests of those who are already enormously wealthy and powerful. And these people are infinitely greedy morally bereft and infinitely corrupt. And uh, that's what I think in the economics. And I think if you, if you see something, in, uh, that's another thing, if you see something it, 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 that's badged as an institute, and if the institute doesn't tell you where its funding comes from, if it's talking about science but it doesn't employ any scientists, look very closely at its stated philosophy. And basically if it's libertarian, uh, it's just a lot of crap, self-serving crap. <laughs>
0: I wonder whether um, science um, became such a powerful cultural symbol that things like economics actually aspired to be given the significance of the science without actually having the scientific method at its heart.
1: Yeah, the, I and mean... so
0: anything that wants to legitimate itself says, I'm a science.
1: Well, that's, that's part of the problem because, you know, so, so economics... I mean, some economics is very scientific, I mean, in, in kind of retrospect and there's a lot of very interesting economic well, writing. The behavioural economics. Uh, I mean, uh, historical uh, economics in a historical sense where actually they went back and where people have gone back and looked at the history of the transactions that happened during the slave era. Uh, people sort of hid what they were doing, but they didn't hide their account books and so forth. Mm. So that sort of economics history is really interesting, actually, and it's pretty valid. And it's probably a lot more valid than other history. Uh, But basically, uh, I mean, there are some things you can do with economics and some things you can't. And and if people are honest about it, they'll pretty much state that to you. Uh, The same thing has happened with religion, though. I mean, the basic issue with creationism is, is that of religious people trying to to say, well, we have real science in this. Well, it's not science, it's, it's, it's belief. And, you know, the, the, the creationists, for instance, who say the world's 5,000 years old confuse the beginnings of the written word with the, with yeah. the beginnings of the world. And, and uh, but so if they didn't argue their, their case in the sense of science but simply said this is what we believe and you know, take it or leave it, uh, Fine.
0: Is there anybody else who wants to ask a question?
1: Either oh, microphone? Yeah. No? I think Still also. Still come down? Well, I we'll, we'll
0: just wanted to say you wanted to say further on that point. Well, I think
1: I've also the point that was raised before about scientists communicating. Um, well, some of us are better communicators than others. I think uh, particularly with respect to high schools and primary schools, it's really good to get stu- bright young students and postdocs and so forth out into the schools, not old fossils like me. I'm, you know, I'm older than their grandparents. And so we, we don't want them, but we want bright young people who can talk about how exciting it is and how much fun they're having and all the rest of it. Uh, but the other, issue, the other issue, though, is you have to think of the nature of the media itself. Uh, We were talking last night in a similar, in a different sort of format but uh, basically there are about four science journalists employed in the whole of the Australian newspaper media. About four and I don't think they're all full time. So, whereas there's one he,
0: journalist for every three AFL
1: players, you've got hundreds <laughs> of sportsmen. I true. mean, this first case, when I when I first uh, after I'd won the Nobel Prize and I'm suddenly on the public stage because I'm the Australian of the Year and sort of travelling around and talking to broader groups because you know I was well known in science, but totally not known. Now I'm really quite famous. You know, having a Nobel Prize <laughs> gives you about the level of fame as a minor figure in a coffee commercial that hasn't run for three years. <laughs> but you know, trying, going to going to Adelaide on the history, on the anniversary of Howard Florey, you know, the guy who, did, who got penicillin online and saved enormous numbers of lives at D-Day and so forth with his friend Ernst Chain and so forth. So that was the anniversary. He was born in Adelaide, educated in Adelaide, went to university in Adelaide, I talked on public radio about Harold Florey, a lot of people had never heard of him, and thought it was very interesting, the crows were winning and I was trying to in- explain immunology to a, sp- to a football reporter on the Adelaide Advertiser. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, we were discussing whether or not the Brisbane Query Mail is worse than the Adelaide Advertiser. I don't think it is. I think the Advertiser is worse, but, but, you know, it's impossible. So if you've got... If your media are, are illiterate... And the other thing, of course, is that a lot of science, when it actually does get into the paper, that the scientist thinks newspapers are about communicating. Well, maybe some of them are maybe the New York Times. I think maybe uh, in elements of the of fairfax does but but a lot of uh, a lot of the, the the industry is about selling papers
0: Do, do you think scientists have to become more um, political, not just better communicating but if if you 're talking about a world where funding is cut and Uh, This tends to be a slightly meek response that comes from the scientific community when they're being...
1: Well, it's a bit like the response we're seeing from the ABC. They're intimidated because they're totally in the mercy of these characters. But um, I I think uh, what we need is is many more people in political life who have a sense of science. And we need a much greater sense of science and the importance of science in the broader community. Because in the end analysis, I mean, John Howard told me, if you really want to get more funding for science and so forth, Get the voters to care about it. And when you ask the voters, actually they care about it. And you know how responsive our politicians are to the voters. Look at the opinion polls. Look at who they'd like to have heading the Liberal Party. Look at who they'd like to have heading the Labor Party. Uh, But we Mm -hmm. we have to find some way of putting more pressure on these people. Also, the the quality of our politicians is disastrous. I mean, (laughs) most of them are... Most of them have done nothing but politics for their whole life. They've either been in the trade union movement or they've been in political offices. They've never done anything uh, and, and that, that describes, I mean, one of them's a failed journalist, uh, but you know, most of them have done nothing.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, I want to take you
0: back to Francis Bacon. Yes. Because I wonder whether or not he perhaps is somewhat responsible for what you've just described the problems as being. As you'd know, I forget the... I always remember the second part of the title of his great work where he tried to capture all knowledge. But Mm -hmm. the subtext was the instauration of man over nature. Uh, Yes. And and, and there was this sense that Bacon had that if only we could know everything, we could control everything, that the uncertainties in life could be eliminated. Now, that that way of thinking about controlling the world Mm. by understanding and managing it is partly the world that Friedman, Friedman himself well, represents. We,
1: we all do this. I mean, well, it's also in the, in the Christian goth doctrine that, you know, dominion over nature. Yeah. We're given dominion over nature. But, but, but this is know, where science takes up that notion yes, of dominion. I know, I know, and, says it, no, and it's the mistake we make all along. I mean, you know, if you look at the early part of the 20th century, uh, you, you look, you, if you go into bookstores sometimes, you'll find these old yellowed hardbacks called Every Man's Library. So, so, people were out there, they were uneducated people. They left school at 12, 15 or something and they were trying to educate themselves. They were going to mechanics institutes, yeah. they were picking up the classics in every man, man's library and they were reading through them and, and trying to, to get a more sophisticated view. And then, of course, we thought, oh, with modern communications and television and, uh, and, 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 and uh, radio, radio then television, and certainly radio is a much better me- mechanism for communicating often, but that we'd all become more educated and more aware well, hello, I mean, you know, what do we watch on television? I mean, I, I don't know, cooking programs. Do people watch Survivor programs? I mean, there's so much. It's, it's, you know, the whole society looks to be dumbing down. And, of course, social media has enormous potential for getting a lot of things across. And if you, that's what I would say to anyone in the audience who's into social media. Uh, if you're in a science lab and you've got really good video of something, put it up on, on, uh, on YouTube. You know, put things up. Because now we can all communicate globally, actually, if we, if we hit it right. Uh, it, you know, Rene Dubos, the microbiologist, is famous for saying, uh, think globally, act locally. Actually, though, with modern communication, we can all act globally. But the problem is, of course, there's as much disinformation there as information. And then there's a lot of people who are just totally absorbed with themselves in this, in this space. You and
0: probably just have to learn how to align science with cat videos and <laughs> you'll be absolutely...
1: We could, but the sort of cat video with <laughs> electrodes sticking out of the head of the cat... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> that won't go down might, so well. Mightn't work too well. I mean, you know... Yeah. Do, you, do you think
0: the other thing that science, why it might be on what is potentially the losing side at the moment of this political contest that it might be that people are a little bit afraid of it too. I mean, you think about the big science stories that come through, it's things to do with genetically modified organisms and the, the kind of the Monsanto yeah. issue... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. nuclear power and other things. Yeah. Are people stepping back from it because they assume that it may also be the author of our destruction, an existential threat?
1: Yeah, and I think that's, that's one of the issues, obviously, and, and basically that's why I want people to be able to take a bit of a look at the science and the scientists themselves. I don't think science... We've got a lot of problems facing us, a science, uh, relying, uh, in fact, it's very interesting, the people who are sort of heavily into climate change denial, I suspect, tell themselves, basically, we'll solve this through technology. So I, I, I talked about this one sort of thing in Melbourne, a big dinner with a lot of people there and I talked about, well, you know, we can't rely on science to solve anything and I, I said, just look at this as an instance. Uh, our engineering and our science has given us this extraordinary thing like the A380 Airbus, you know, that this massive thing that, that, that can take off, fly through the world, the pilots don't even have to do anything, uh, they just sit back, but it burns fossil fuels. And how are we going to get beyond that? And so, you know, we hit limits. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that those limits can't be overcome and we won't find other ways of doing things. That's one of the mistakes old scientists make. You say, well, you know, it's all been done and we did it and nothing's going to happen now. And, uh, but that's ridiculous, of course. But basically, I don't think we can rely on science to solve everything, which I mean, it means a change in attitudes and it means a change in values. And it means also, though, that we have to use science as best we can to solve issues. Now, case in point is influenza. The influenza A viruses are are looking more and more dangerous. They're the main pandemic viruses. They're what we work with influenza, and we're getting more and more situations where we're seeing in Asia, where where birds and people are together in these live bird markets, viruses that are relatively innocuous in the birds, causing lethal disease in humans and they're inapparent infections in live bird markets, for instance. Now, people have been trying vaccines, it doesn't work, I mean, the vaccines aren't good enough, it's just too big. The only way you can really deal with it is to kill all the birds, but if the birds aren't sick, you can't really do that, and it requires a lot of diagnostic power and all the rest of it. So, one way to do it, we know what the genetic defect is in the chicken that makes it so susceptible to influenza. Uh, We could actually engineer the birds. to be much more disease resistant. In engineering the birds, we would save enormous losses due to slaughter of poultry flocks. And we would also diminish the possibility of a very serious influenza pandemic that would wipe out a lot of us. So that's genetic engineering. Another case for genetic engineering. But you have to make
0: that case with that positive You have
1: to and it's very hard because Greenpeace and and various organisations will just vilify you if you try and talk about Mm. this. We've had people try and talk about uh, GM and rural communities. have just been shouted so you, you, you They're you, not
0: allowed to You talk. pointed out politicians, big business and others as the enemies of science. No, but it's, it's but do also you see
1: Greenpeace too? As- uh, actually, Greenpeace is great on a lot of things. I, I really think Greenpeace is wonderful on a lot of things. They're totally irresponsible when it comes to, to GM. They, they simply shout it down. That's what I'm saying. It's this culture of shared belief yeah. that you cannot discuss this. Another thing that's been blocked is they say it's all Monsanto making a profit. Well, it's not. There's an enormous amount of publicly funded science in that area. There's, there are people trying to develop drought-resistant varieties that would, would go longer without needing rain. Yeah. There are people trying to improve the nutritional value you, Ego Patricus' is vitamin A rice. That, the, about 600,000 kids mostly die every year from vitamin A deficiencies in countries like the Philippines and that part of the world. And, and, and you can correct that by feeding this vitamin A rice. We have to finish yeah. up. Yeah. Are you optimistic that science will win in the knowledge wars in the end? Well, you know, a basic human characteristic is denial. Optimism is denial. Of course I'm optimistic. <laughs> right. <laughs> well,
0: on that cheerful note...